This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. This episode is dedicated to the loving memory of Clara Staunton, physician, activist, musician, artist, an amazing mother, grandmother, aunt, and friend. Clara was a lifetime champion of public television and radio. Thank you for your support of the wild. South Africa, 1956. A small Ford Prefect bounces its way down a rutted-out road. The car is crossing an orange grove in the northeast part of the country, and the driver was hoping to find a very unique creature. I was right near a water thing, and I stopped the car, and there, about, about maybe 100 feet away were two giraffes. Anne Innes Dag had been looking forward to this moment, seeing a wild giraffe, for almost her entire life. She was only in her 20s, but she'd come here all the way from Canada to learn more about these long-necked wonders. So I got out of the car and then slowly I moved towards the giraffe. But then I saw they were moving further and further away to my horror. And then when I got to where they had been, of course, they were far away again. The giraffes were skittish. Anne came to this part of Africa to study giraffes in the wild, and nobody had ever done that before. It was all new territory. Western science knew next to nothing about these creatures until Anne started observing them in the 1950s. Just a small notepad and that trusty old Ford Prefect. So I realized I'd have to always sit in the car. I could never study them unless I was in the car. So that was pretty depressing. But <laughs> Anne was a tough, straight-talking, trailblazing woman, dedicated to science and social justice. She wrote a book after her time in Africa that is still considered to be the giraffe bible by many in the field. But there's a good chance you don't know her. She was actually in Africa observing wildlife before Jane Goodall. So why has she been forgotten? What is the story of Anne Innes Dag? She's the revolutionary biologist and women's rights advocate you've most likely never heard of. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Oh, that looks like it might be Chris there. Or at least we see his face. I recently met up with Anne and her daughter Mary over Zoom from their home in Canada. They were patiently waiting for me to get on the call. We look, we were looking at his website. We're like, okay, this guy loves bears. Once in a while, he would get into orangutans, but then he'd get back to bears again. <laughs> I do love bears, you're right. <laughs> with a little side foray into orangutans. Hi, ladies. What's up with the orangutans? Mary is here to help with the conversation. Anne, her mom, is 88 years old now and sometimes needs a little help with the details of her remarkable story. I dove right in with Anne to learn about the first time she got her spark for the giraffe. 
She remembers when she was four years old, going with her mum to the Chicago Zoo. And the two of us looked at the giraffe, and I knew I'd love it forever. Just, just a wonderful animal. I just couldn't get over it. Anne's curiosity was never satisfied when it came to the giraffe. She tried to look them up in her local library, but couldn't find any information. Well, my father said there weren't any books about giraffe, and so that was when I thought, well, I'll, I'll, ma- I'll make a book about it then. But all through high school, all through university, we never talked about giraffe, <laughs> ever. So, so then I realized when I graduated, I'd have to go myself and find out how they were. No books on giraffes? Fine, I'll go to Africa, learn about them, and write one myself. And so is, is this what triggered you? What kind of gave you the idea, okay, I'm going to go to Africa to learn about these creatures? Do you remember that moment? Oh, yeah. I remember thinking and, and telling my parents I'd be going to, to, and they looked doubtful, but I thought, well, you know, I know better than they do. And <laughs> <laughs> if I could just get the money together. And then I, I did get some money, and my mother gave me some money, and uh, then I could go. But going to Africa in the 50s as a woman was not just as simple as buying a plane ticket. This was something that just wasn't done back then. Anne sent out letters to universities, boarding schools, any place in South Africa she could think of asking if she could stay there. But the reply was always the same. No women. So Anne tried a new tactic. And then I started giving information with an A instead of Anne, and that worked a little bit. She would sign letters of introduction with just her initials to hide the fact that she was a woman. You weren't pretending to be a male, well, you weren't pretending to be a man, but you weren't giving away that you were a woman at the time. No, if you can get away with it, but then they find out that it was a woman and it, it cancelled it again. So, yeah. Um, I know you reached out to Leakey as well. Oh, yeah, um, LSB Leakey, yeah. Dr. Lewis Leakey was a Kenyan-British paleoanthropologist who's most famous for helping Jane Goodall get her start in Africa. Anne had reached out to him, but even he was a no. And, and he didn't seem, well, he had Jean, Jane Goodall in his mind, I guess. Well, she didn't, that was three years uh, later. Yeah. Mum was before Jane. We just like <laughs> right. to make sure people know that. <laughs> Mum was before Jane, yes, that's good. Let's remember who the trailblazer was here. The initial trick finally worked. A man named Mr. Matthews replied. He owned a citrus orchard near Kruger National Park in South Africa and gave permission for Anne to come and stay with him. There were plenty of giraffes on or near the property. But Mr. Matthews said yes, thinking Anne was a man. So Anne then had to respond with a letter to clarify. And he wrote back and said, well, you can't because you're a woman. So so, then I had to start again and say, well, then I said, please, 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 sort of thing. And then um, he said eventually... Uh, well, the problem was because his wife and three daughters were off in California, so he was alone in a big house. And so he said, of course, you wouldn't want to be there. And I said, oh, no, no, <laughs> I'd be fine. <laughs> this was definitely an uncommon situation for that era, a single man and young woman staying together. But Anne had no problem with it. She had to find a way to spend time among the giraffes. Mr. Matthews finally agreed. So Anne packed her bags and she was off. Africa bound.
Mr. Matthews had that old Ford prefect she could use, and would push that car to the limit every day to observe giraffes in the wild. So I went, I started at eight and stopped at six pretty and went back, went back for lunch as well. So I just followed what every animal was doing and um, it worked pretty well. She took notes about the interactions between the giraffes and the relationships she was observing. She wrote about how they move and she tied ribbons to trees so she could remember what types of plants they liked to eat. And then with the leaves, with the plants, I think you would watch what plants... Oh, yeah, what, what they were eating. And uh, keep the, then I had a person that I had to take to a, um, a person who had leaves, who, what do you call them? A botanist. Botanist. And then with, with the leaves they were eating, and then she told me what the names were, were of each of the branches. So then I had a list of the, of the food they used. Anne noticed that giraffes mainly eat the leaves of acacia trees. These trees have thorns to deter animals, but giraffes can use their long tongues to delicately remove the leaves. Giraffes can eat up to 75 pounds of these greens every day. Anne also detailed a unique behaviour. Sometimes the giraffes seem to be fighting with each other. They stand sort of looking at each other and then they go beside and then with their tail like this to hit the the um, body of the other one. And then the other one will try and do the same thing and, and they'll sort of prance around slowly trying to smash each other. Um, it's really something to see. <laughs> and, and, and it's always males doing that, is it? Yeah. The, f- the females didn't fight anybody. Amazing to be the first person to document that kind of behavior. I also heard that you observed some other interesting behaviors as well. Uh, There was something about homosexual giraffes, I heard. That's a phrase that you don't hear every day. (laughs) I was really excited about that when I saw a male mounting another male. uh, But I was too embarrassed to tell anyone. (laughs) Even Mr. Matthews saw it. But I wrote it all down, so I know exactly what they were doing. And you yeah. actually released a scientific paper on it in the 1970s. Yeah, apparently. And I, was, I think I was the only one, first person to write about um, homosexual behavior in animals. So that made me wow. laugh as well, because it was only that these what, a few giraffes that were doing it. This is still an open debate. Some experts say it's just a male-on-male dominance display. But others say there is more going on. But Anne was the first person to observe and scientifically note this type of giraffe behavior. I mean, at the time, you know, there were still laws that you could be thrown in jail if you're a homosexual. So it was, you can just imagine people going, what? Because the argument's (laughs) always been, well, it doesn't happen in the wild, therefore it's not natural. And, you know, it shouldn't happen to human beings. But this article is saying, yeah, it does happen in the wild. So this whole talk about it being unnatural is not true. So it really, I think, was part of a huge game changer. Yeah, it was. You know, that really said, hey, you know, maybe this isn't such a big deal, right? (laughs) On her first trip, she spent 10 hours a day for six months watching, learning, and scribbling notes in her field journal. And back then... Anne wasn't just a trailblazer for women in wildlife research, but just research in general. There never had been anyone doing giraffe. I mean, they just weren't, wasn't any, no one was interested in animals. Yeah, and I think people were surprised as a woman, a white woman, why are you here? Like, yeah, I don't well, understand. Yeah, that, that. Of course, apartheid was unfortunately well entrenched uh, in the 1950s. 
Anne was often approached by other white people in South Africa and told she couldn't talk to the black population. Seeing apartheid and the way she'd been treated as a woman fueled Anne's passion for social justice. Giraffes were just the first part of Anne's career. There was much more to come. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. After her time in Africa, Anne went back to Canada to complete her PhD dissertation. In it, she wrote about the unique way that giraffes walk. No other animal walks the same way as a giraffe. They have to swing two together because they're so long and they would hit each other if otherwise, so they're sort of different than pretty well any animal. When giraffes walk, they move both legs together on one side of their body and then both legs on the other side. Most other four-legged creatures move their legs diagonal from each other at the same time. But giraffe legs are too long for that. The legs would hit each other, and the giraffes would trip over themselves. After publishing her research on the walking gait of giraffes and successfully getting her PhD, Anne started teaching at the Department of Zoology at the University of Guelph near Toronto. She was on track to get tenure, which was huge. She would have a secure position to teach and continue her research into the animals she loved so much. She kept up writing articles for all the top publications at the time. She was certain she'd get tenure. Yeah, well, I published um, over 60 in all, and then it was told that I never did any publishing. So I had to have my, um, I had to leave the university. (laughs) And why, why did you have to leave the university? Because they said I said I had to, and I was a woman, and I shouldn't be there. Well, it was you're taking a job from a man, and a man yeah. needs to pay for his family. Um, and that, this happened with the three universities, and then they all said I did an excellent job, but then they wouldn't have you because I was a woman. I couldn't be a a real professor. Anne is pushed out of academia. She wasn't allowed to be a professor. Anne describes it as the end of everything she had hoped for. I, I, I felt just uh, awful, because <laughs> it was so unfair. I think a big part of when Mum was in the 70s is there really wasn't any mentors. There really weren't any other women that she could say, how do I navigate all this sexism that I'm having to, to live with? You know, How do I get tenure? How does this work? There was nobody. So she was really on an island and... and you know, had nobody to talk to, no support system. With no tenure, Anne lost the ability to keep up with her research. But her book, which was titled Giraffe, Biology, Behaviour and Conservation, is still viewed by many in the giraffe world as the foundational text for their field. Being kicked out of university was a turning point for her. She decided her energy had to be focused on women's rights. 
She led protests against sexist policies at universities. She even took a denied tenure request all the way to the Ontario Supreme Court. But nothing changed. But I, I think um, when you were in the 70s and your career was sort of cut short in terms yeah, of studying giraffe, then you really kind of changed it to women's rights. And, and, and to animal rights. And animal rights. So I think there's huge, huge stuff that came out of that. Yeah. Huge stuff that suddenly people were treating women differently and challenging how universities treated them and just women in general. But without a platform, Anne and her pioneering work gradually faded into the past. It is interesting to compare Anne with Jane Goodall. Both had the same passion that drove them to study wildlife. Both spent time in Africa in the same era, both making a path for themselves in science. So why did Jane become a household name, but Anne didn't? I think one of the cores of it is the animal of choice. I mean, mum picked a giraffe and she's got a chimpanzee. So she can kind of hold it and, you know, there's there's a poster where she's kind of touching the hand of the, <laughs> the chimpanzee. And I think people are, you know, wow, this is maybe one of our closest relatives. And that that's much more relatable, I think, mm-hmm. than this huge animal that, you know, up until I don't think you'd ever touched a giraffe. You oh, know, no. and people are like, you mean you've never touched this animal that you've spent your lifetime studying? No. And people just can't get their heads around that. Um, so I, I think part of it was the, the animal choice as well had a factor. Most of Anne's contribution to the scientific world had been forgotten. And Anne had made peace with that fact. Well, up till recently, there has been no problem. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, I mean, the movie made a huge yeah, if, difference. Without the movie, I'd be nothing. I'd never heard of Anne until a documentary about her life was released in 2019. A friend told me to check it out. The movie's titled The Woman Who Loves Giraffes, and it reminded the world about Anne Innes Dag. Mary, Anne's daughter, had never realised how influential her mother's early work had been until she saw the movie. We knew mom liked giraffes, like we'd buy her a giraffe towel or, you know, but she wasn't the one that would say, you know, hey, I've done this amazing thing. Anne never was one to brag. The documentary uses a lot of old camera footage that Anne shot herself during a time in Africa in the 50s. There are images of that old Ford Prefect car, Anne scribbling notes as she watches giraffes in the distance. All of these memories and artefacts had been locked away in her mind for decades and in the attic. We'd go up into the attic and we'd find the, the shields and the swords. And then we'd look at the film going, oh, look at mom, <laughs> and never realize the significance of any of it. The film kind of reminded the scientific community about her too. And she's now becoming recognized for the huge contributions she's made. In one part of the documentary, young biologists are coming up to her like giraffe groupies. But sometimes when you're first... You don't, you you don't, don't really know. get the attention because the groundswell of interest isn't there yet. Like, yeah. you know, the, the tipping point, if you will. Um, so I think you were first out on a lot of stuff, but it, just because you were first didn't mean you got the most attention. Right. Yeah. With the success and attention from the film, Anne and Mary now run the Anne Innes Dag Foundation. They're focused on helping giraffe populations that are struggling in Africa now. And in 2016, Anne got to relive some memories 
For the first time since 1956, she returned to South Africa, including one very special place, the citrus farm run by Mr. Matthews. It's now a resort for tourists, functions, and weddings. Are the giraffes still there? Um, there are giraffes there, but I don't know. They, as far as I know, they aren't the same ones, but that would be, what, 60? Well, we kept thinking maybe they're distant relatives. <laughs> well, they would. They would. Okay, great, great, sure. great, great, great children. <laughs> that, that must have been incredibly powerful, just thinking, okay, these are the giraffes of the descendants that I started my career with. I know, just like, a, like a, the happiest time of my life. <laughs> Anne, with the help of Mary promotes giraffe education and conservation through their foundation in Canada. The giraffe population in Africa has declined by 40% in the last 30 years. All told, fewer than 70,000 are left in the wild. Those that remain are fragmented and facing threats of habitat loss and poaching. Giraffes are even targeted for their valuable tails and hides. And for some reason, there hasn't been the sort of legal crackdown or public outcry for giraffes as there has been for the ivory trade in Africa. They don't have any rules at this point um, that are really tight to the same degree for giraffe. So if you want to get a piece of a giraffe, they have examples of Bibles that are covered with giraffe skin. Mm. And people are thinking, oh, isn't this lovely? You know, I've got a piece of Africa. And they're not even thinking about the poor (laughs) giraffe that had to die to Mm. do that. And unfortunately, COVID has also impacted giraffe populations. With travel down, tourists haven't been going on African safaris in the same numbers. So local unemployment has been high, which is not good for giraffes. You know, if you've got to support your family and you don't have any food or you don't have any money, you know, maybe you go and kill a giraffe and you're able to use that meat to to feed yourself and your family. And and I can understand that. You know, I, I do understand that. So there's a lot of pressure from um, just the economy and the environment. They are hoping the success of the film and the attention it will bring will move the needle when it comes to saving giraffes. But there's still a lot to be done. Anne has done her part. Now it's time for others to pick up where she started. And I think that's what Anne believes, in her own frank sort of way. How does it make you feel when you've touched so many lives and inspired so many people? I think it makes me feel good, but not really. I mean, you know, I don't really care. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm so glad they like it, but uh, yeah, I don't don't really, doesn't really bother me. You don't dwell on it. You're very scientific about it, I think. Well, yeah, yeah, I love animals and I love working with them and and, uh, and people get annoying. Well, I think um, part of it, too, is to you, it's never been about the acclaim. It's about getting, sharing information. It hasn't been about, look at me, I've written the do-do-do. It's about, you should know about this and you should know about that. And it's about sharing information. So yeah, that, very that different. would be right, yeah. For Dr. Anne Innes-Dag, it's never been about how people viewed her or even what they thought about her. It's always been about her passion for those curious, towering creatures that walk the African wild. She never wanted the spotlight, but when she has it, she'll tell you all about the giraffes she loves.
We've posted some photos of Anne's time in Africa on our Instagram at the Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. And if you'd like to see the documentary film about Anne's life, that is available on Amazon. It's called The Woman Who Loves Giraffes. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a production of KURW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Paul Lister, Bob Yellowlees, Annie Mize, and Julie and John Hansen. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti, Cara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Smith, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy The Wild, you might also enjoy telling everybody you know about it. Seriously, your reviews really help as well. Thank you, and take good care. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.